Hi, and welcome to Having New Eyes, a podcast to help you look at things differently, to think, to reflect, to ask questions. The real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. Marcel Proust. And now here's your hosts, Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Everybody's talking about how the world's gonna Well, welcome back, everyone, to Having New Eyes, Bob Hotard in San Antonio, Texas. Well, I guess we basically took the summer off of 2020 for various reasons, but in today's climate, nothing is surprising or normal in any respect. So I thought I would start today with a quick look back at where we left off in season one, migrating to the melting pot. In our last episode from April 14th, Immigrations and Migrations. We focused on the idea of migrations and how COVID-19 had just caused the movement of people kind of away from their jobs to work at home. Students, they were either not going home if they were international students or others were being forced home. Others were being forced to find a home uh, close to their schools. People were migrating from face-to-face work at an office to online. That was kind of the, everyone calls it the new normal. And then, you know, these migrations that happen every year, we talked about spring break, graduation, just these normal rites of passage that would not take place this year would have a very different tone if they did. And and that seemed to be the case. But we also talked about political and economic migrations, people that were in the lower middle class in the U.S. or, or even elsewhere. Will they be migrating to a poorer, lower class? Most of our focus was then just on the coronavirus and the effects of that. But we talked about this being our Pearl Harbor. What does that mean? And and that immediately brings to mind, we talked about this, that we're at war. And I want to point out, we released episode five on April 14th, 2020. And even then we were talking about being at war. This was before George Floyd, Breonna Taylor, and other incidents that birthed the Black Lives Movement in June. And not to mention the major shift we've had in approaches to work and education over the summer. And as it gets closer to the fall, what's going to happen? The the sports teams, how are they going to come back to life if that's even possible? And of course, you can't leave out politics, rallies, conventions, voter registration. And now here we are, July 31st, when we're recording this, 2020, and even the U.S. Postal Service is in the spotlight because with COVID-19, are citizens going to be able to safely vote in person in November, or will they have to mail in the vote? Will that even be possible? So it certainly seems that we've reached the proverbial tipping point, and that's our, that's our topic, that's our episode for today. And, and we say tipping point in Malcolm Gladwell's book, The Tipping Point, written back in 2000, the year 2000, 20 years ago. And so with that, I'm going to introduce my guest and partner in crime, Jim Jones from Brookline, Massachusetts. Hi, Jim. Hi, Bob. It's Jim here. And as I hear you giving a recap of the year and even in the last couple of months, I've been reading the news and I'm saying, you know, it's just some of the same issues repeating. When it comes to our last episode on migration, my gosh, since then, there have been many student migrations of young people who are trying to find a place to stay. Speaking personally, I have a young Chinese man from Shanghai staying in our home because he migrated from China to the United States and Beloit College to get his bachelor's degree there. But then the dorms were closed. 
and he needed a place to go and not wanting to have to risk going back to China and risk re-entering the United States and there's quarantine involved on both ends of that, he would have to eventually migrate across the continent because he's gonna get his master's in San Francisco. He's not the only one. There's multiple stories like that. Then of course, we've got the migration of this virus. Okay, where's the hotspot? New York State, no, no, no. Now it's California, no, no, no. Now it's Florida, now it's Texas. Now they say it's migrating from the Southwest into the heartland in middle America. So we've got that going on, but probably one of the greatest migrations that I see happening is an ideological migration. The idea of ideas, strong, powerful ideas, just like when communism spread out of Russia, and it maybe it was a negative idea, but it spread. I'm seeing how this idea of Black Lives Matter and what this country and how we define it and define the citizens in it are about. Because that movement, I'm now seeing when I watch the news, they're on the streets protesting in Portland, Oregon. They're on the streets protesting in New York, here in Boston. So I'm seeing this migration of ideas which started maybe perhaps with the death of George Floyd, the murder, the homicide of George Floyd, if you will, from another perspective. And it's still basically the same issues. But again, as I've said before, we have a particular pair of eyes that we look upon the news. And I ask myself almost daily, what are you looking for, Jim? What do you expect to see? Am, am I looking for hope? Am I looking for patterns that will tell me the journey of our country? I've asked myself that many times, including about my own identity. Who am I supposed to be as an American with all this turmoil roiling around me? So I agree with you, Bob. There's a lot to cover. So when we talk about the tipping point for our episode today, we think of the three concepts that Malcolm Gladwell talks about. Law of the few, stickiness factor, power of context. And I would certainly say it doesn't take very long before you say, well, we certainly check those boxes. Uh, the law of the few people are influencers, are able to spread the message. Stickiness factor, it's certainly there. It's not going away. It's, it's increasing. It's gone from protests of what we had in a few places, possibly in the second week of June, and then also the, the power of context. So I, I don't think there's any question. In fact, we've heard it a couple of times, if, if not a few times, or quite often this summer, that we've reached the tipping point. I think the question becomes, it's not just the tipping point of Black Lives Matter. I don't think it's the tipping point of COVID-19. It's almost like we have this perfect storm of tipping points. Major things are changing and shifting. And part of that is that migration concept also. But Jim, would you agree that it's something a little bit more than just a, just a tipping point of any one movement? You know, pick your language. Are we creating a sea change? Is this a defining moment in the history of the United States? Is this a turning point for us as citizens? Is this a flashpoint collectively? Or is this for a lot of people, man, I've reached my breaking point. <laughs> you know, there's so much going on 
that depending upon your language and for Gladwell's definitions, I that works for me, but I see this giant wave above a flat country geographical landscape of the United States and this cresting wave is coming up. But it's not just one, it's multiple. Just like in the past when we have had these choose your language tipping points, whether it was Pearl Harbor and now the country was going to have to make a shift because we were going to an actual world war. Whether it was the dropping of the A-bomb that propelled us into the nuclear age, whether it was the actions in the South of the civil rights movement beginning because of violence, or maybe it was just Jackie Robinson appearing on an American Major League Baseball field. Whatever it was, there have been examples for us prior to this that we might use as a way to reflect upon if we're at tipping points. And I use the plural because what tipping points are we at? The tipping points of some of the individual mayors and leaders in the country like Keisha Bottoms in Atlanta or Mayor Walsh here in Boston, because now their political capital has raised them to prominence and visibility, and they're rising to their own, what, tipping point to political success, holding another office. That's just one of them, but in education, in healthcare, in housing, in banking, in the tech and media industries, and even in sports, I see that there are many tipping points. And basically, to reiterate, I just see that there's the law of the few, which says, you know, basically there's a couple of key people that are now endorsing and having visibility. The stickiness factor, there are just certain things. There are certain innovations. There are certain departures from the conventional that are starting to occur that is drawing people in like a magnet. And the power of context, well, there's just a fertility, a context, an environment now that's being created by what's happening in communities. And I see multiple tipping points. I wonder, maybe, are we quoting the wrong author? Maybe this is uh, Alvin Toffler's fourth wave or fifth wave by now, since it's been so long since that book has come out. And, and you mentioned that a, a wave. And then I started thinking, well, this is kind of a tsunami. There's just, there's waves and waves of different things happening and different events. And it certainly seems like we all feel like, and can all agree, we're there. This is, this is it. This is, there's no going back. I, I think that's what everyone is, is really dealing with in, in one way or the other. And in some cases, not, not so well, but it's, it's happening. That's, that's for sure. Well, you can certainly quote a lot of documents. I would say there's one basic document that I always go to the well for, so to speak, and that's the Constitution. Because when it says in the Constitution that we're trying to create or form a more perfect union, that implies to me that we are imperfect. So I see all of these issues, again, which are roiling around within society right now as ways of showing we are imperfect. And we're striving now 
maybe not define perfection because I don't know if we'll ever be the perfect society, but maybe improve, ameliorate what our circumstances are so that we're a little bit better than we've been in the past. And yes, we're going to have people that start their movements, but then we'll have opposition to those movements. But I like the idea, whether you like it or not, that there's movement. You know, when I was studying physics back in Thomas Jefferson High School in San Antonio, Texas, with Mr. Andrews, ooh, that was a tough class. Yeah. We studied inertia. And many times what we have in the country is we've become complacent. We've become complacent about what? Our educational system, how we look at issues of race, looking at the infrastructure that we have currently in the country. And it's about leaving our inertia and having some movement. To me, every day I read the news, the news is a metaphor for forward progress. Different things are happening each day that are different than the day before. And because of that, and I'm looking for answers in the news, I have to have a pair of eyes to look at the news. Our theme for this season is what does it mean to be an American? And and you talked about the Constitution. I've asked a few people, I've talked to them, just, just said, you know, what does it mean to you to be an American? And I think you make a good point there about movement and, and progress and, and forming a more perfect union, being imperfect. And, and one of the things people have replied to me or, or, or a response I've gotten is that's part of who we are, that imperfectness, where we have to learn to live with each other because despite our differences, whether they're cultural, religious, how we look, how we talk, and even if we don't like some of those things about others, it doesn't matter. We, we all have similar ancestors or we've come from other areas. And a point was made, we shouldn't disgrace them by just shutting out others, whether that be in your neighborhood, at an event you're going to, if it's our borders, if it's our schools, it's this idea of openness. I, I wonder how many people really share that idea when they think of, you know, am I, am I an open person if I'm an American or does that make me close out other people? Am I a nationalist? Am I someone who says, no, I am A, B, and C because that's what an American is, period draw the line. That kind of brings up a whole new, a whole other area, but I, I think it's interesting and pertinent to what you were talking about, progress, movement, inertia. You know, the United States is a story. We have a narrative. Every day I'm seeing how this narrative is changing and moving. This narrative of ours has interpretations. It has different sets of eyes. In Episode 42 of The Sopranos, Tony Soprano and Carmela are seated in their kitchen, and their son AJ is seated at the kitchen table doing his homework, and he has Howard Zinn's People's History of the United States. And proudly to show his youthful learning, he announces, quoting Zinn, that Columbus basically was a slave trader and a killer. And quoting the diary talks about how with 50 men, he could subjugate 
all the natives and make them do whatever he wanted them to do. And Tony Soprano goes into space. He <laughs> explodes and says to his son, he discovered America is what he did. He was a brave Italian explorer. And in this house, Columbus is a hero. End of story. In our language, mic drop. No now, kidding. Oh, now, I, I now, don't recall that, that, that scene, but that's, wow. Check it, check it out. But it raises the question. If the United States is a narrative, and we look upon this narrative to see where we've been and what we've done and who we are and where we are going, even in the middle of a pandemic, then the question is, what about historical accuracy? Where do we get our lessons of history and our lessons about who we are and what we stand for and what our values are if we want to be more perfect in history? Having been a history teacher for many years, we have what we call concepts of historical understanding. And you don't have to get all fancy with a phrase like that. Basically, it says you look at history and you look at what's happening. And one of the questions you ask is about significance. Why? Why is this a significant thing? Another one is about causation or what led up to this? Another one is about agency. What moved people to do this? Another one, a very important one, is about evidence, because when it comes to historical records and documents, they don't all have the same value. Is someone's eyewitness account of Jackie Robinson coming into the major leagues, if they were a white supremacist, different than another person's who's saying, yes, baseball and the country advanced because of this? Or are the facts, as reported by a reporter, more important than an opinion that someone had. As all these things evolve, we see patterns. We see patterns starting to occur. That's what Malcolm Gladwell did. He, see, he says, I see patterns where a couple of key people, I don't know, a George Floyd, a president of the United States, I see key people making some type of focus of our attention upon them. Not only that, but I see some innovative changes that draw people together, just like they might have said, look, everybody is watching Ed Sullivan on Sunday nights during the last several generations of mine. I'm aging myself. Or they might even say, what is it the environment right now? Right, right now. What is it that has been happening that made it, in Gladwell's terms, the power of context, that made it right that, what, education shifts would be changing, certain people would come to prominence, economics would change, the tech and media would change. You know, I'm even seeing, in terms of current events, how sex is changing, because evidently, intimacy during a pandemic is changing because, depending upon what your, how should I put this, preferences are male, female, or any other, there are new types of instructions. And right now, for many, maybe they're young, maybe they're very uh, frisky, but 
they're looking at the current time as, wow, this is fertile for me to know about how I should be acting as a person during this pandemic. Nothing is sacred, as they say. Uh, <laughs> so in, when listening to you and thinking from my eyes, I have to ask myself, how have we gotten to a point where when you look at medical data, or, or let, let me just say it this way, why are there arguments and differences with wearing a mask in public to battle COVID? Why are people questioning that there's a pandemic? And it seems like that's a, a huge, I don't know if we expected that or not. I don't think we did to the extent that it is now and where we're at at this point. And to, uh, until a few weeks ago, it was even in, in our government until they've all decided, well, yes, I guess now we should wear masks. But it, it seems like, you know, the, the medical profession was never questioned like that. And maybe in some senses, it's good. Or in some sense, it's good to, that we are questioning the medical community, that we're not just accepting everything at face value. But I don't think we expected to see people getting into not just arguments, but fights over wearing, wearing a mask or not wearing a mask, or groups of people saying, no, we have the right to gather whether we wear a mask or not. That, to me, I think has been something else that has maybe not hit a flashpoint, but it's certainly, it's certainly at a point where it probably is, is signaling something. Wouldn't you agree? Again, I would look to history because history of the United States takes on a particular character. Who are we as a country? Oh, well, we're the country of rugged individualists. We're the country of people who rebelled and used violence and dumped tea in the Boston Harbor and confronted with violence aggressively the British soldiers. That's who we are because we'll rebel to become free. Who are we? We will ride in wagons across the country and move west, even though there might be Native Americans out there that will challenge us. We'll take the risk. We'll live out there. You know, we'll defend a mission is, in San Antonio. And yes. Fight to the death and lose. There is a there is a history, and we learn this history in school, just like we learn, well, I did racism in school. We learn these narratives. And we adopt them. If you are the son of the Grand Kliegel of the Ku Klux Klan, you're probably, when you grow up, are going to be in the Klan because you've learned certain ideologies. And one of ours is about this whole idea of independent spirit and doing it for ourselves. And more specifically, it has to do with health. Hey, if you want to smoke four packs a day and ruin your health and get cancer, We've never passed a law that says you can't do that. If you want to drink and consume alcohol and make a fool out of yourself in the street, tripping over drunk, yeah, you might get arrested and everything, but you can go out and do it the next day if you wanted. Don't tell me how to do that. In a way, those are some of our traditions, traditions of being independent enough to make choices for ourselves. Look at the whole issue around abortion. This whole idea of a woman's, this is my body 
and I choose what to do with it, regardless of what your religious beliefs are. So I would say that for many people, they, they accuse certain people in the medical profession of breaking the traditions of individualism that we have. Now, breaking traditions of individualism is a little bit different than saying, well, I go to the doctor regularly because the doctor is going to tell me what I need done. But even then, people are going to say, no way I'm having a colonoscopy. I've heard what that's all about. I'm not doing that kind of stuff. And it's happening in many, in many arenas, as I said, in which traditions are being broken. I have a little five-year-old granddaughter, my wife and I, who will start kindergarten in September remotely on Zoom. Now, wait a minute. This is breaking the tradition. Now, of course, there are some alternate factors like health. But there are those parents that say, no, 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 they need that socialization. Let them go into school, do it 50-50, do a hybrid. So we're going to have these arguments contradicting the traditions and the quote-unquote experts all the time. It's happened throughout history. I think people, they say those are our freedoms. I think that's what seems to be the the popular, that's the, that's the, catchphrase it's not you know a traditional tradition of individualism it's saying you're taking away my freedom my freedom of choice to send my kid to school or you know i am free to do this and i think that that's that label that's that american label that people want to put on an issue that says you can't tell me what to do because i can choose for myself science be damned politics be damned whatever I have the freedom. That's the first thing that came to my mind when you started talking about that, Jim, that tradition of individual. You are absolutely right. That's how we are individuals because we can make those choices and we can say, you know, a hybrid education is the thing to do this fall, but not all are one. It's people saying that we have the freedom to choose. And when you say, and we're dealing with this in San Antonio, where our mayor is, is trying to flatten the curve and, and reduce the number of COVID cases on a daily basis. So we're trying to put in rules and regulations, or they put in rules and regulations and say, you know, you have to wear a mask, you still have to quarantine. This business can only be open on a limited basis, XYZ. But then people right away say, you're taking away our freedoms. You're taking away our ability to to choose. Or the Texas government comes out and says something different. No, local government can't say that. You you have to be able to send your kid to school or you have to be able to open back up, et cetera, et cetera. And there's that battle that seems to be going on between individual freedom and what the laws or what the rules or what the government is saying is best or should happen or in order to to overcome this this medical if you will challenge what we have to do you know we have all kinds of traditions that come into conflict with what our freedoms might be i'm going to break it down to something very simple on halloween when i was in high school the tradition was drive around in your friend's car and go paper people's trees 
have a couple of beers, uh, commit a couple of uh, acts of petty negligence, like uh, throwing eggs at people's houses and everything. That was a tradition that was embedded, and I picked it up from what I saw modeled to me by teenagers before me. Now, crime, and that was maybe petty crime, was not something that we would say that's a, a freedom we have, but for whatever reason, we felt like we could do this. We could show what? Our manhood, our freedom, our youthful uh, exuberance. What is it? One of the big ones I see right now is the traditional role of police. Because as you know, right after the incident with George Floyd, in which he died, after that, there was a movement which gained power and gained strength, not always to everybody's enjoyment, but gained power and strength. And again, pick your language, reallocate the funding for police, redirect the funding for police, rechannel the funding police, defund the police, dismantle the police. But we have certain traditions, as do people who join the police department, of what their job is going to be. And now for some people, it's you have to develop new eyes so that maybe we need people to be on site as uh, a trained social worker to deal with a situation before it becomes more aggressive and it escalates. To what? Not have people that used to be members of the SWAT squad and have a certain capability and talent to be the ones that go to maybe calm a domestic violence call. So we're saying rethink some of the traditions that we had. And if we do, you might see that as a challenge to some of the freedoms. You know, I will say this. In some ways, I'm very disappointed because if anyone remembers the name David Hogg and Emma Gonzalez, in 2018, they were at Stoneman Douglas high school when 17 people were killed by someone that went in with an automatic weapon. And these two young people gathered a group and they were going to challenge the NRA and have Congress, go to Congress and have the laws changed, not to get rid of the Second Amendment, but to modify it where you can't walk around or possess an automatic weapon. I don't know how many people remember their names, but I'm thinking, what happened to that? I don't hear their names. I don't hear any kind of tidal wave working up to a tipping point or a culture right now that exists or a couple of key celebrities or individuals right now. So this whole idea of tipping points, you know, six months from now, the police issue may be moot. I don't know. Six months from now, the whole idea of what constitutes, you know, uh, education and paying people not to work so they can support themselves for housing and food, that may not be an issue. I don't know how these tipping points will evolve in the narrative of the United States, but I do know that there's a lot of fertile ground and a lot of movement right now. And we're saying, look at this because this is the narrative of our country. What's going to happen to us? What will it mean to be an American? There's so much to un unpack and with with the not just the racism or systemic racism issue, but the, the policing issue, which, of course, you're you're very well versed in and have had years of experience with and about 
it seems like now what I'm trying, what I want to say is that it doesn't seem like it's just going to go away because it's daily, but also because it's causing us to do things. And when I say us, maybe I'm, I'm speaking of, of white people that are, are being forced to think about, and I'll, and I'll share, I've had conversations with black colleagues of mine at, at work and, and people I've worked with before and, and talk to them. And, and in fact, it was, it was actually a, a prompt that I got from, from LinkedIn where a former colleague said, Hey, if, if you know someone of color right now, they're hurting as right after George Floyd, right after his death. And so I, I reached out and I've had conversations and it still is shocking to me that a well-educated person of color who's in a prominent position uh, at a company, at a Fortune 10 company, has to live with systemic racism on a daily basis, has weekly incidents of being treated differently or having to prevent their family from doing things normally because it's just not the same. So when we're at that point where all that now is coming in more of a focus, it's forcing so many more people to have a different lens. Seeing things like an image from the, I think it was the early 60s, if not even before then, of a police officer's knee on the neck of a, of a Black or an African-American woman. The photo looks so similar to George Floyd. It was just in, uh, amazingly shocking. It was embarrassing. It was, wow, 50 years ago, and this is as far as we've come, nowhere, or when you look at it from that viewpoint. The point I'm trying to get to is that there's so much about racism now that doesn't seem like it, it's just going to go away, or it's just going to be what we've had before. I don't think there's a, you know, a, a David Hogg or a Emma Gonzalez that's going to be forgotten about. And, and to be fair, we have things like the Sandy Hook promise and organizations like that. But you're right, they just kind of fade into the background. But I think now, and, and even at, uh, at AT&T where I work, we're, we're finding that it's not a question of if companies have a diversity program. It's what are you going to do to prevent not just racism or systemic racism from continuing, but what kind of programs are you going to have to make sure people of color really do have equal opportunity or really, or, or your, your numbers really do change. And, you know, that's, that's something that you can't, you, you can't talk around. You can't say, well, we have great diversity numbers and then, you know, four out of five people on your, uh, on your board or on your, in your leadership team are, are white and are non-people of color, as they say. So there, there's no, you know, you can't escape that data. So I'm seeing this happening now and it's becoming more embedded in not just our culture, but in the way we do things. Maybe I'm only looking at it from, from with, with kind of rose colored or, or glass half full eyes, but I've never seen it like this before in, in at least in the, in the web or internet industry that I've worked in for 20 years. 
and I've never seen it in, the, in this corporate America environment taken hold so quickly. It hasn't even been a, a choice or a, or, a, or a decision or a discussion. It's happening. And I don't see any downs, downside in it at, at this point. It's, it's all good. Well, I don't know about you, Bob, but I see in my education that I, as well as I believe that anybody that went to public schools within the United States, maybe it's broader than that, basically, we received a racist education by racist in subtle ways in which, well, look, I'm Latinx and I didn't even read or know that Sandra Cisneros existed until I got to college. And I'm thinking, wow, what? Mexican-Americans don't write books. What's the deal here, you know? Whether it was the images depicted or whether it was learning the history in San Antonio of how valiant those Texans who were living in a place they had invaded and weren't supposed to be because it was part of Mexico, how valiant they were because of those big bad bullies, the Mexicans that came in there and just wiped them out. I mean, it's all a question of perspective and who writes the history books like Native Americans. Come on. I mean, you know, we know what what happened to Native Americans, but it was something glorious to have, my gosh, manifest destiny. The language is, this was our destiny to do this. And okay, some people got in the way and they just had to be Native Americans. There are these trends that occur before concerning race. Gunnar Madal wrote an American Dilemma 50 years ago. And basically he said the race problem in the United States is about white supremacy and the role of the police reinforces white supremacy. After the turn of the century, W.E.B. Du Bois said that the problem of the 20th century is the problem of the color line. We knew these people, scholars, academics, were writing about these issues because they'd researched them. On the other hand, in the 20s and 30s, the KKK were marching down Main Street in Washington, D.C. Why didn't they have a tipping point where everybody became members of the KKK or there was significant change? You don't see that anymore. I might be driving along a highway and there might be a a white supremacist movement in the South that they're responsible for the maintenance of of a certain section of the highway and everything. A lot of these things didn't contribute to the tipping point. And if we're going by that, then we're saying that maybe Gladwell was onto something that, well, okay, let's say it was the death of George Floyd, as opposed to all the other deaths. Maybe it was the immediacy of the action. Maybe it was the immediacy of a couple of key people that came out and they were visible and they spoke of it because, look, if uh, Muhammad Ali said, this is the aftershave I use, there's going to be a lot of people say, oh, Muhammad Ali said that. Maybe I should be using that aftershave. Besides those personalities, which had some sticking points, and I think a lot of them were celebrities because you know how we raise our celebrities to royalty status here. And you say, wow, Tom Hanks got involved. Tom Hanks and Rita Wilson got involved. I think there's certainly the, the, what Malcolm... Uh, uh, Gladwell calls the stickiness factor. I think that there are some unique things that depart from conventionality that contribute to the movements and the protests that we're seeing. And this may seem mundane, but I think it's a really unique movement when you see, 
I don't know, hundreds of people in masks that say Black Lives Matter walking around? Does that make a difference if they're wearing a T-shirt? Does it make a difference if they are walking around in a major city and they happen to organize where they were doing it simultaneously in so many places? I have a son that lives in Portland, Oregon, and he's been on the streets, uh, on the ground, so to speak, with his camera. He's a professional uh, photographer and videographer reporting daily. And there's a different look to the protests that have been occurring. Some people might say, oh, well, it's a violent protest. And some people would say, well, you know, we created change in this country and became independent because we had violent protests against the British. Now, I don't agree uh, with, you know, uh, history repeats itself because there's a famous phrase that says history doesn't repeat itself, but it rhymes. And I would say there are some similarities in what we see occurring. But yes, Gladwell has, according to his paradigm, there are some things in place that we see occurring and there is still a momentum because instead of one protest and then everybody goes to work and then the next weekend people do it. I've been protests like that. In Portland, it's been 56 straight days. In Boston, it's been 56 straight days. Part of what I see in uh, in Gladwell's talking about uh, uh, the stickiness factor. One of the things that makes things stick is when you say, my God, I woke up this morning again And I saw the same pictures of protesters as I did five days ago, 10 days ago, 20 days ago. So I'm I'm just guessing here. Maybe part of the stickiness factor is it has been sustained instead of, you know what? I don't see people protesting Vietnam or any kind of war lately. That might be one of the reasons that we might say that Gladwell, Gladwell has caused us to have new eyes and that in terms of what we see, historical evidence is, is that we're seeing this pattern. Wait a minute. They're on the streets and it's sustained. Wait a minute. It's on the news and it's sustained. Or locally, I'll tell you this. I'm seeing more flyers dropped off at my door. I'm seeing more local politicians that are running for office that are saying Black Lives Matter as a part of their message. I'm just seeing something that's sustained, that's creating the context. And I think that that is part of it. There's movement, there is uh, motion, and it hasn't stopped yet. Yes, yes. You know there's, there's momentum, and you know it's something different when in the calm north side district of San Antonio, when you rarely hear of any political issue, our council person actually sent out an email and a message through different channels talking about protests and the the right or what he thought about protesting at, at a government person or a government person's uh, place of residence versus the, the government building in which they work. Uh, and the interesting thing was, as soon as that happened, I think a day or so after that, he had to send out a a, not a retraction, but a uh, a clarification of what he meant. So you know, you know, big deal. You know, oh wow, District Nine, North Side, San Antonio, whoo. Uh, uh, but it's that is so different from the. 
you would never hear, I would normally never hear from our councilman or, or care or even know if there was an issue going on at all. But now it seems like it's, it's permeating everything and everyone. I, I asked someone about this, you know, about this tipping point, and they, they brought up a, a, an interesting point that it took all the other deaths and injuries and malicious treatment at the hands of police brutality and shoved it in the face of even previously supportive people of, of the police departments and said, now you can't ignore all of it. You have to see this. And I think that the, the one image that you, you uh, that has been brought to life was the, the contrast of Colin Kaepernick and the NFL, the quarterback in the NFL that protested police brutality in 2016, now, how has it changed in 2020? Completely different uh, viewpoint, even by the league officially and the idea of protests. So now this is not because blacks have done something to deserve this, or maybe they've been in the wrong in the past. No, it's because it's happening to them because they are black, no other reason. And, that, and this is what this person said, Every day, people of color live in fear and exclusion from the normal. And, and I, I talked about that earlier. But I, I think you have to look at it and, and say that it has started to accomplish that view that maybe now people of color will have the opportunity for better education, uh, better jobs, or getting a home loan or generational wealth or all of those things that we take for granted and now have become issues for people of color, not because they didn't exist before. I say they've become issues, but they've become known issues to everyone, not just to people of color. Does that make sense? <laughs> it's that new eyes. It's the perspective that now I think white people, quote unquote, are having to look at this differently and examine what is really happening here. What is, you know, when you say our current culture, my current culture, or everyone's current culture, and how is their culture so different from mine that when they get up in the morning or their kid puts on a tank top to go outside or a hoodie, they have to have what's known as the talk. You can't do that if you're a black person or a person of color, Hispanic, et cetera, because you're looked at differently. You think I would ever say something like that to my child as a white person? Absolutely not. Who cares? No, no difference. You want to tank top? Eh, don't get sunburned. It's about the biggest worry I'd have. But now we're seeing what a different world this is uh, for, for people of color. And it's, again, nothing has changed. It's been this way forever, but now it's being seen in a different way. Well, you're, you're also talking about external changes. We see external changes all the time, from the music we hear to the tank tops that are worn and the way kids wear their hair or anything. I mean, I certainly look different than uh, externally than, you know, what I did even 10 years ago. Uh, I'm not going to go all literary on you here, but uh, Leo Tolstoy said, we hear human beings talking about changing the world. Maybe they just ought to change themselves. There's a book out, a recent book, by a young man named Casper Terquila. He's at Harvard Divinity School. It's called The Power 
of ritual. Gosh, I don't know about you, but I have daily rituals. You know, I have, uh, you know, don't ask me to get up in the morning and I brush my teeth. You know, I got daily rituals all day long. But he said, the original Greek meaning of the word apocalypse is uncovering or revealing of what's already true. We're looking at what's already here, but with new eyes. And that means to me that what you saw as your rituals before, if you still are looking them in comparison to the landscape of the world, you're going to find change very difficult. But if you are looking at them, as I might to my granddaughters uh, going to kindergarten, saying, oh, my gosh, all the things she'll miss out instead of saying, gee, I wonder what kind of new, exciting journey in education a young kindergarten student might have through technology that I can't even conceive. We have a local police department here in Newton. And I understand this with police officers as well as a lot of people, but I think what a recent chief said, a police chief said, he resigned. And Chief McDonald said, I never shied away from difficult work. But in this environment, perhaps it is time for a different set of eyes to come in. And you get used to seeing things for a long time that sometimes you might not see things. So this idea, which we said, this is going to mean something in how we look at the news and the patterns, and that is having new eyes. I heard our senator from Massachusetts the other day say, this is our 1933. And immediately I thought, oh my gosh, 1933, Germany, Hitler, comes to power and it becomes a dictatorship. He goes from being a chancellor to a dictator. But I was wrong because he was referring to another event in 1933 when Roosevelt becomes the leader, the president of the United States, and it's at the tail end of the depression. And if there's ever a time that needed to develop a movement, some motion, a context, and for a country to look upon things as having with new eyes, it was when Roosevelt came in and he broke some traditions and established more governmental control. And even my father joined the Civilian Conservation Corps so he could have a job and everything. And the country did reach that tipping point and change from depression into a more vibrant democracy. Now, I think about that and say, oh, yeah, Senator Markey, I mm. should focus on my own country to think about, is this an opportunity for some change, which is always difficult. I mean, you're not going to be able to brush your teeth in the morning anymore. You have to break the rituals. Because if it is, it can either be very exciting for some of us to be a part of that and talk about it with our great grandchildren and grandchildren. Or, oh, it's going to be miserable for a lot of people in the process because change, just like aging, <laughs> it, it can be so uh, disagreeable to us. It's interesting to think who in power has the ability and not really the authority, but who is going to make that kind of a change? What is going to happen 
uh, in 2020 for who's going to be our Roosevelt? Interesting question. Interesting thought. And uh, I agree with you, Jim. I think it's all about change. It's all about how we handle it. Are we open to it? And what are we going to do about it? We're at the we're at our at our closing, and I I just uh, you just feel like we've just started to scratch the surface. I'm excited that we have more episodes coming up and and more to talk about. I hope we've answered some and and uh, others. We've uh, at, at least maybe uh, put some uh, rewetting solution on the lens to uh, allow a clearer view of things. Well, um, I'm geared up. I'm geared up because next time we're going to talk about something that is an undercurrent in this, and that's that along with these changes, we're going to have to adopt new eyes to look at who has the power, because there will be power shifts that we may not agree with, but our traditional lens of looking at who has power might be shifting, and we're going to be talking about that issue in the next episode. Thank you, Jim, for another great episode. Yep, you got it, Bob. All right, take care. Well, there you have it. And we hope you'll be part of this conversation as we share our thoughts and ideas. Our goal, as Jim says, is to make you think. And after you've thought about each topic, reach out to us on Facebook and Instagram at Having New Eyes Podcast and on Twitter at HNE Podcast. Be sure to use the hashtag Having New Eyes or HNE. You've been listening to Having New Eyes, a podcast by Bob Hotard and Jim Jones. Download Having New Eyes on Apple Podcasts, Google Play for Android, Spotify, TuneIn, and Stitcher Radio, or on any of your favorite podcast apps. Jim thanks the many students over the decades who were his teachers on a human level. Yes, he was making mental notes. Bob would like to thank his family and the many coaches, teachers, and mentors for the support, encouragement, and inspiration. Find him on Twitter at Bob H. Web Design. Some portions of today's program may have been pre-recorded. Music by Jay Kleiner from the album I Am Me, live from the living room. Stream Jay's music on SoundCloud.com. H&E is recorded in San Antonio, Texas. Audio engineer is Jason Barrera. Executive producer, Bob Hotard. All rights reserved. I'm Becky Steinmetz. Remember, the real voyage of discovery consists not in seeking new landscapes, but in having new eyes. This podcast is a part of the C-Suite Radio Network. For more top business podcasts, visit c-suiteradio.com.